All right, it's been a while since I've done a podcast, and I feel badly about that. I've essentially been working on the same episode since January, but the topic keeps shifting from one thing to another as the year unfolds. 2022 has been eventful, to say the least. The pandemic phase of COVID appears to be behind us, and you'd think this would be cause for celebration, but we've been distracted by other things. At one point in the year, it felt like a geopolitical misstep could have triggered a nuclear war. Meanwhile, inflation is the highest it's been in 40 years, and the stock market has been really ugly, especially as of late. Most investors have their portfolio tilted toward the S&P 500, which has done okay on a relative basis. But I won't understate how bad it's been for other areas of the market. The NASDAQ index, made up of around 2,500 stocks, and largely made up of technology companies, well, 50% of these stocks are down at least 50% and many are down more than 75%. Now understand that when a stock is down 75%, that means it went down 50%, and then the investor watched it go down another 50% from that point. And to get back to even requires a 300% return. The more speculative corners of the market are indeed getting punished. The high growth, high multiple tech stocks that were perceived to be disruptors have been clobbered not to mention cryptocurrencies and NFTs. And think about companies like Zoom or Peloton, which were enjoying an enormous tailwind from COVID. Well, the winds shifted, and these stocks are down more than 80% from their highs. Even bonds, which investors often use to play defense, have had a tough start to the year, as higher interest rates force the price of bonds to adjust their price lower to fall into equilibrium with higher market interest rates. So why are markets behaving this way? Well, that's the topic for episode 10. I'm certified financial planner, Justin Daring, and this is the North Country Wealth Management Podcast, where we discuss markets, investing, and the headlines that impact your finances. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any specific securities. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, and all investing involves risk. The views expressed are those of North Country Wealth Management and did not necessarily reflect the views of Mutual Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Investment advisory services are offered through Mutual Advisors LLC, doing business as North Country Wealth Management, an SEC registered investment advisor. Now, there isn't just one reason for the stock market going down. But without question, it's the Federal Reserve that has had the biggest impact on markets. And this is because the Federal Reserve is mandated to keep inflation in check. And they do this through the use of two levers. One lever raises and lowers interest rates, and the other controls the supply of money. Each of these levers can have a stimulating or slowing impact on markets. Now, if you go back to Fed meetings from this time last year, the takeaway was that they were going to let the economy run hot for a while, keeping interest rates low, in continuing their bond-buying program, which effectively increases the supply of money in the economy. And when you hear people talking about printing money, this is what they're referring to. Now, the Fed's reasoning for letting things run hot was that they were unsure if the forecasted COVID disruptions would continue to plague the economy. This proved to be a big misstep. Inflation started heating up last fall and hasn't slowed in spite of the Fed's belief that the inflation we were experiencing was temporary and can mostly be attributed to the disruptions that continue to plague the supply chain. And now the Fed's hands are tied. Rather than gradually hiking interest rates and slowly tapering their money supply efforts, the Fed has had to act quickly. Earlier this year, 
They indicated that they would raise rates essentially until the data says that inflation gets back to more normal levels. This had an immediate impact on interest rates. And this is why the stock market is throwing a fit right now. So how did we get here? A lot of people on social media would love to point the finger at just one thing. Perhaps it's Joe Biden. But to point the finger at just one thing would be to ignore all the other contributing factors. And I don't think it's fully appreciated how disruptive COVID was to the world. COVID led to massive unemployment, a 33% contraction in GDP, and a previously unimaginable disruption to our way of life. And you'd think this would have decimated the economy, costing millions of jobs, bankrupting businesses, and crushing our stock portfolios. But that's not how things went. The government stepped in and did a very effective job of keeping financial markets strong and labor markets even stronger. But the tight labor market is a major contributor of inflation. Labor costs are embedded in everything that we consume. And while we appreciate a strong labor market, it does come with some degree of inflation. Also contributing was a shift in demand from services to demand for things. And this put pressure on an already strained supply chain. These supply chain issues continue to be a major contributor of inflation. We've seen a reversal in the trend of globalization. It is globalization which allows economies to access lower-cost labor and less expensive natural resources than are available domestically, food and oil being familiar examples. And the cost of food and fuel is up considerably. And this trend is only exacerbated by the war in Ukraine, which adds even more pressure and additional layers of complexity. And to think that just over a year ago, oil literally went negative for a short time. That is, oil producers had to pay someone to take delivery of their oil because it would be more expensive for the oil companies to store the product than to put that burden on others. On the topic of energy, the world produces about 100 million barrels of oil every single day, and it consumes about 100 million barrels of oil every single day. And if that delicate supply is disrupted, like if the world agrees to stop buying oil from Russia, the world's third largest oil producer, that delicate balance gets thrown off, and markets respond immediately. Oil prices are set in the global marketplace. Joe Biden and Donald Trump, Congress, and the Federal Reserve don't have a lot to do with it. And to place the blame on the government for the price of gas ignores all the other factors that go into the price of oil. There are honest debates to have with any political administration about their policies relating to oil production and consumption. But the fact remains that oil is a highly inelastic good and very sensitive to global changes in production. Could Joe Biden do more to help oil companies? Of course. But is there great capacity for price improvement? Are there regulatory changes that can be made that would help the everyday consumer? Perhaps. And those are honest debates that we should be having. But I have my doubts. Oil companies tend to sell to those who offer the highest bid. And as Europe faces an energy crisis, this will surely impact domestic prices. Energy prices are at all-time highs, adjusted for inflation. And this has been, by far, the biggest contributor to the inflation we're currently experiencing. And the price of energy is baked into the price of just about everything that we consume. So it's no wonder that this is a major component of inflation. And then there's the massive amount of government spending. Now clearly, we got a lot in return for the government's efforts. But it's also clear that some of those efforts didn't hit their intended target. For example, $872 billion was handed out in unemployment benefits but it's estimated that $163 billion of this was fraudulently obtained. 
and some estimates suggest the actual figure was closer to $400 billion. And with the Paycheck Protection Loans, known as the PPP program, a lot of that money was inefficiently spent on businesses that really didn't have the need for financial help. For example, a Florida recipient of PPP money used the proceeds to build a golf course. Was that the intent of this money? So for a variety of reasons, we have inflation. And because inflation is at a 40-year high, the Fed is now slamming on the brakes. And this, in a nutshell, is why the stock market is freaking out right now. Understand that the Fed only has two tools at its disposal, and neither tool is a scalpel. But both tools are effective at raising interest rates, and the impact of raising rates is already clear. Had you bought a home last summer, you could have secured a mortgage for less than 3%, and your payment on a $500,000 mortgage would have been fixed at around $2,100 per month. But 30-year mortgage rates are now at 5.5%, and that same loan would cost you more than $2,800 per month and you'd pay twice as much interest over the life of the loan. 91% of homeowners have a mortgage interest rate of less than 5%. So if these higher rates were to last, it's hard to imagine that this wouldn't have an impact on the housing market. We've seen the stock market throw Fed-induced fits plenty of times throughout history. I doubt that most of you remember the so-called taper tantrum from 2013, when the Fed attempted to tighten policy and the market had a mini meltdown. Stocks went down about 20% in the fourth quarter of that year, but the market quickly rebounded after the Fed basically said, okay, okay, we'll stop tightening. This was a different scenario, however. It was easy for the Fed to admit their mistake and reverse course in 2013 because we weren't experiencing high inflation during that time. This time around, we need to get inflation in check before the Fed can reverse course. Now, the Fed has acknowledged some of these past mistakes where they were too quick to tighten policy. But this time around, they made a mistake in the other direction. They were too helpful to markets for too long. And because of that, we missed our chance for a soft landing in the stock market, a period of time where higher rates could slowly be implemented. Now I use the term soft landing because this is the term used by Fed leader Jay Powell, who insists that it is possible to create a soft landing. And I believe he has clearly indicated that he is determined to slow the economy at a clip that doesn't result in a bad recession. But to be clear, the Fed is looking to put us into a mild recession, in technical terms, that is. Technically, a recession occurs when there are two negative quarters of GDP. And we're already halfway there, with the first quarter being negative for the first time since the onset of the pandemic. Let me take a stab at how this ends. Last month's inflation reading was slightly below that of the previous month suggesting that inflation may have already peaked. But one data point isn't a trend, and we'll probably need a few more readings that show the Fed's efforts are working to slow inflation. I think it would be reasonable to believe that the Fed will slow their tightening if this happens, and markets would react favorably to this. Unfortunately, I don't know the timing of this, and neither does anyone else. So in the meantime, we need to sweat this out. But we will get to the other side of this. The sell-off we've seen is a fairly normal correction for the market. It's uncomfortable, but as a stock investor, you will need to face temporary setbacks from time to time. Our economy continues to be in very good shape, and there will be brighter days ahead. I do believe that now is a critical time. There have been plenty of mistakes made over the last few years, but I don't think now is the time to politicize this. There's plenty of blame to go around. 
Joe Biden is taking a lot of heat for the inflation we're experiencing. But I think a lot of that criticism is misdirected. The government's payroll protection program and the expansion of unemployment benefits that I mentioned earlier, where there was massive fraud and waste, well, those were Trump policies. Now, I'm not blaming Donald Trump for the inflation we're experiencing, but it would be unfair to point the finger at Joe Biden without acknowledging the enormous inefficiencies that came from the policies passed by the Trump administration. And the infrastructure bill passed by the Biden administration is not the culprit here. That money is to be spent over a decade, and it's being spent on things that need to get done. And implementing this should have a deflationary impact, as this expands the places for dollars to go and improves efficiencies, allowing our dollars to go further. This is precisely what we need, and we should all be happy that our government finally passed an infrastructure bill. Keep in mind that this was a bipartisan achievement, with 69 senators voting in favor of the bill, which includes 19 Republicans. Now, there are plenty of honest debates to be had about the policies of the Biden administration. Surely some of the stimulus passed by this administration also missed its target, and I question how much of it was actually needed. But given the abundance and magnitude of inflationary forces, it's flat-out lazy to point at Joe Biden and say that he is the cause of inflation. One thing I've learned to appreciate in the last year is the fact that the federal government cannot run out of money. And money should not be an obstacle for good ideas that have the capacity to be implemented. If both parties accepted this, it would represent a major shift in thinking. Too many politicians believe that the federal government's budget needs to be managed like a household or a business, where access to capital is limited by revenues and borrowing limits. In actuality, the federal government does not have the same constraints that are had by families and businesses and local governments. The federal government has an unlimited ability to create new money. But this is not to say that the government can use this tool to solve all of society's problems. I know it sounds strange when I say that money is unlimited, but it's true. What is limited are good ideas and capacity within the economy to implement those ideas without causing inflation. So if the government is to use this tool, it requires that this money is spent wisely. And this requires a competent government where the two sides work together. My wish is that this becomes an understanding that is shared by both political parties. It's exciting to think about what we could do if we had a Congress that was simply focused on compromise and creating good policy with good incentives. I think some people look at government failures and argue that this is why we should have a smaller government. But this isn't an argument for smaller government. It's an argument for better government. Either fortunately or unfortunately, we get the government that we deserve. After all, we live in a democracy. And based on what I see, our elected officials are a pretty fair reflection of us. So the divide we see in government shouldn't be all that surprising. But I hope we can come together and change this. I hope that we can start bringing the conversation to the middle of the political spectrum and can share the belief that government is important. We can have honest debates about how big or how small our government should be, but we can't deny the importance of these institutions. Let's not allow this country to be run by wingnuts. Let's recognize that the political spectrum is a bell curve. And assuming you aren't a wingnut, you have a place near the middle of this bell curve, whether you're a conservative Republican or a liberal Democrat. The middle is a big place, and it's time we start recognizing that. Thanks a lot for listening. 
And please reach out to me directly if you'd like to have a more in-depth discussion on these topics.